want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue our journey in Ephesians. We will be in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 16. I want to ask you a question today. If the Apostle Paul was alive today, and he was a missionary, right? He was the apostle missionary in America, and he wrote a letter to Liberty Baptist Church. What do you think he would want to write to tell us? What reminders would he put in it, and and what issues do you think that he would address? What would you think are our most urgent needs that the Apostle Paul would need to write about? As you think about that list, I wonder how many of you think unity, definitely unity. If I'm honest, I don't think many of you would put unity on there because we don't necessarily have a problem of disunity, it seems. But it's significant that the first command that Paul issues in this letter is a command for unity. It's a command for unity, and he does that because the unity of the church is directly linked to its grasp of the gospel. The unity of the church is directly linked to its grasp of the gospel. So in other words, church unity is the first sign of a healthy church. It's the first sign that a church understands and cherishes the gospel. But the thing is, the thing is, church unity isn't just a byproduct, right? It's not like we get together, we call ourselves a church, we call ourselves Christians, and then bam, unity happens. No, unity, unity takes work. When I was a, a teenager, um, I foolishly thought that being a Christian meant just avoiding sin, right? So avoid sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that kind of thing. And so a question I would often ask myself in my head is, how close can I get without it actually being sin? Willa, Willa is not necessarily asking that in her head, but that's what she's doing. Like, how close can I get for this thing? But the thing is, Christians aren't supposed to just avoid sin. We're called to pursue something else. So it's not just a negative refraining from something. It's a positive pursuit of something else. So Christianity isn't just avoiding. It's an active and positive call to pursue obedience by faith in Christ. In the same way, unity doesn't just happen by avoiding Right, Avoiding the awkward conversations, avoiding the messy details of each other's lives, avoiding tough conversations or awkward moments. We are called to pursue unity, to make the unity and the health of the church our priority in obedience to Christ. So when we read this passage, what we'll see is that Paul begins this passage with a call to live a life worthy of our calling. He's he's urging us, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And living worthy of our calling means precisely working towards and pursuing deep 
unity with one another in Christ. So let's see then how we are called in chapter 4. Let's start reading chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, He ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul wants us to understand that we are called to something. And the first part of that call, we are called to unity. We are called to unity. So remember, this is the first command that Paul gives in three chapters. So it's an important command. Right? And the first one is this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, in English, we're a bit at a, at a disadvantage here. So our you can be used both in the singular and the plural. So what I can say right now is you need to buy me pizza. And that can mean all of you or one of you. And I'm just going to leave that there. But, but, uh, not only that, not only that, but our, in our hyper individualized culture, we always understand you in this individualized sense. So in almost every case, when, when you hear you, you hear, oh, me. He's talking about me. But when Paul uses the word you in his letters, is it, it is almost you in the plural. So you guys or you all or y'all or yens, whichever you plural you want to use. In fact, to my knowledge, none of the yous that he's used in Ephesians so far have been singular. Like they've all been plural you. And so one verse I want to highlight in particular is chapter 2, verse 22. In him... You, plural, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So Paul is not just addressing every person individually, like he's saying, like, you, 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 all of you as individuals, but he's addressing them as a collective whole. Together, all of you, as a unit, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so this is really important because he tells us how to do that. Look at verse 2. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Guess what all these commands have in common? They are all others-oriented. Humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, maintaining the unity of the Spirit, they're all others-focused, others-minded. And so to live a life worthy of your calling looks primarily like how we live with one another. So when, when as a Christian, right, and as a younger Christian, I would have read that, live a life worthy of, of your calling, and I would think, okay, yeah, be a good person, try to live a righteous life, you know, don't sin in this way, don't sin in this way. But no, Paul's saying to live a life worthy of your calling looks like is then exemplified by how you live with other Christians, how you live with one another. And this is exactly what Jesus says in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew something of this. Uh, he was a, a, a pastor, theologian in Nazi Germany, and he, he and his church had to meet in secret because of Nazi persecution. And I, I'm actually going to quote him quite a few times uh, in this sermon. He wrote a fantastic book called Life Together. and He had this to say about Christian love. He said, human love is directed, I'm going to restart that and say, human love is directed to the other person for his own sake. So loving the other person just for their sake. Spiritual love loves him for Christ's sake. Because spiritual love does not desire, but rather serves, it loves an enemy as a brother. It originates neither in the brother nor in the enemy, but in Christ and in his word. People often say that they are glad that they don't have to live under the Old Testament commands. And, and I'm going to be honest, I'm glad too because I really love pork, right? So that's one reason why I'm glad I don't live under those laws. But people say that because they're like, man, it'd be really hard. I mean, it's just be so hard. But, but I would argue that the call of Christ is harder than any other command, any command of the Old Testament. The commands don't get easier in the New Testament, they get harder. So it's not just, thou shalt not murder, it's thou shalt not hate. Thou shalt not hate your enemy. In fact, thou shalt love your enemy. And it's not just, thou shalt not commit adultery, it's don't think about other women lustfully in your heart. So the commands actually get harder and deeper in the New Testament. And so it's not just tolerate and coexist and love and live with one another in this coexistence where you have shared interests or a shared hobby. It's actually love and serve and pursue the good of one another in Christ, for Christ. And that's hard. That's a lot harder. Yes, I believe the commands are even harder, but the grace that we need to obey them is greater. 
Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When Christ saves you, he saves you to his body, the church. So when Paul says, live a life worthy of your calling, he means building unity in the church. What this means is that the Christian is united to other other believers, much like a husband is united to his wife, because the Christian's calling is fidelity to a relationship. Marriage isn't about avoiding all the bad stuff. It's also about working to build an even better relationship. And separation, leaving that relationship, is an absolute last resort. What this means is that you are committed to the church even when your preferences aren't met. Think about this. In the New Testament days and in even a lot of the world today, the local church was your church. Like the church that you're saved into are the believers that you're stuck with, right? So there's no First Baptist Ephesus or Second Baptist Ephesus. There's the church in Ephesus. And that's who your church is. You're not going to church. That's who the church is. So I want to quote Bonhoeffer again. And he said, Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Listen to this. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And guys, this is a a danger that we in America have to be on our guard against because it's easy, so, so, so easy to shop around for churches in America. It's like, okay, well, this church, well, they, you know, they do this. So let's go to this church. Oh, we're this, you know, the pastor said something offensive in this church. So let's go to this church. We get, we have this easy option of jumping from church to church. And Paul's like, commit yourself to a body of believers and work to the community that you so desire. This is, it's a nuanced discussion, right? Because some churches aren't faithful churches and it is important to find a good faithful church. But the point is you are united to the body of Christ even when that body disappoints you. We are called to a unity, a fidelity, a working up, a building up of the community of believers. When I met Mallory, I was so amazed by, like, everything we had in common. Uh, and and uh, she's not out here because she would laugh at this. Like, the thing that, like, really got me was that we, had, we both had our favorite movie, and it was Lord of the Rings. I'm like, a girl likes Lord of the Rings. That's awesome. Like, let's make this happen. Let's make this work. Let's do this. Uh, but it's only after being married uh, that I learned that we're actually, like, really different. We're very different. So I'm a laid back guy and I, and I, everything's going to be okay. Man, we got this problem and everything's going to be fine. No worries. She loves to think of every possible scenario that could happen and land on the worst possible one. 
So, so when it's Willa and her health insurance, it's like, we're going to lose health insurance and Willa's going to break her arm and she's going to, you know, get this deadly disease and we don't have insurance and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, it's going to be fine. If she hurts herself, she hurts herself, you know, no big deal. Uh, no, no, I don't mean that. Forget I said that part. Um, I like spending time alone. Is she, her, like, if she could choose it, she would spend, like, every moment with me she could. And so, it's not just what we have in common that makes our marriage fun and good. It's our differences, too, because we balance each other out. We, we need each other's differences. She, I, I help calm her down when she's overly worried, and she helps me see some things you actually need to worry about. So, in, in a similar way, we're not only called to unity, but we're called to diversity. We're called to diversity. Paul writes, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what Paul is saying is the essentials are the same for all of us. right? These essentials are all the same for all of us, but there are varying degrees and a diversity of gifts. What is the gifts that Paul talks about? So that's when Paul goes into this explanation that's like kind of... At first glance, kind of weird, kind of hard to understand, actually. Uh, and so he quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. In, in verse 8 here, he quotes that psalm, and he says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So in this original psalm, in Psalm 68, God, uh, the, the Israelites are singing about God being this victor. He's triumphant, and he's, he's returning to his home city, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and he's, he's leading his, his captives in his train, right? So back in those days, when a king would triumph over uh, a, a people or an army, he would lead captives in a parade to show that he has conquered. And so God is, is leading his captives to the temple, And so Paul takes this verse and he applies it to Christ. And he applies it to Christ being this victor who distributes these gifts to men. And so this is where things get interesting. Paul expounds on what he's trying to say. Like, in my mind, he's like trying to make it clear. And he's like, you know, clear as mud. And he says, he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And we kind of just read that, and we're just kind of like, yeah. Uh, now, now I'm not saying Paul is, is being unclear. Right? Paul is being very clear. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? So it's our fault that we don't understand this. So, so some people take this verse to mean that Christ descended into hell. Uh, and, you know, there's a whole thing about that. But I don't believe that's what Paul means here. And, and even if you could make the argument from this verse that's what he means, that's not Paul's point. Paul's not trying to develop this theology here. In Scripture, Christ's ascension is always understood in the terms of his descension as a man. Right? So, so his ascension is always understood as his descending as a man. And the best picture of what Paul means here is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Right? So Jesus Though he is God, he laid down his rights as God to descend as a man in order to die on a cross. And as a result of that, he ascends into heaven as far seated, far above all rule and authority. And so Paul, he's talking about the incarnation. So it's really simple. That's great. He's talking about the incarnation. So all of this is important because in explaining this verse, he applies it 
in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So all of that, we have to ask, what does Christ's incarnation and ascension have to do with this? One commentator aptly put it this way. He said, having achieved dominion over all the powers through his victorious ascent, he sovereignly distributes gifts to the members of his body. The building of the body is inextricably linked with his intention of filling the universe with his rule, since through the church his, is his instrument in carrying out his purposes for the cosmos. So in other words, it is not through a nation, not through a government, not through a law or policy or legislation or business that Christ exercises his rule. It is through his church. Christ's primary mission as he sits exalted as kings is the building up of his church, and he does that through a diversity of gifts. And here, in, in this passage, the gifts aren't, aren't kind of what we normally think of spiritual gifts. The gifts are the people themselves. And this list is an exhaustive list. Like he, he lists these, these offices, these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, uh, because this list, they're, they're foundational for the church, right? Uh, and, and so he kind of mentions that in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. All the saints, right? So if you're, if you are a saint, if you're a Christian, you are in the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, why he mentions these offices, these people, is because they are responsible for providing the doctrinal framework in which the body exercises its gifts. Right? So teachers and apostles and prophets and all these guys, they're teaching you this is your doctrinal framework. This is the truth. This is what we are to believe so that in that framework, Christians can exercise their giftings freely and to the glory of Christ. So, what all of this means is that when Christ gives gifts, like he quotes in Psalm 68, he gives us each other. That's what that means. Bonhoeffer, quote him again, he said it well, the prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile, sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. Christian, I, I'm happy to be your pastor. Like, it is an awesome joy to be your pastor. But the pastor is not the harbor of all spiritual gifts. God's design is not for the church to be dependent on one man, but to be dependent on each other. When one member withholds serving the body, the body is hurt by that. Tony Marita said, every member should grow up and use a towel, not wear a bib. Every member should grow up and use a towel, not wear a bib. God calls us to joyful serving diversity. We are called to loving unity by exercising responsible diversity. We are called to loving unity by exercising responsible diversity. Why? Why? So that we will become more mature. Our last point. 
we are called to maturity. We are called to maturity. Uh, in a sermon recently, I, I it is hot in here, isn't it? Um, uh, and I mentioned in a recent sermon, I've mentioned how like when you use a tool and you don't use it right, it loses its purpose, right? It's it's, but it ends up not being the tool's fault. It be, ends up becoming your your fault. And so you guys know what a ratchet strap is, right? It's it's this mechanism with the strap, and so you can like pump it or ratchet it so that the strap becomes tight around an object, usually to hold uh, an object together or hold an object down. And they have these for woodworking, and uh, and and I use it to keep like a box together. So like four pieces of wood into a box, you can use a ratchet strap to keep a box together. Well, I got this thing, and and I'm I'm gluing this small little box together. I mean, it's it's not very big, but this this ratchet strap is like ten feet of rope at least, like maybe twelve or fifteen, and. And and I, I start ratcheting that thing around this box. I, I glue it up and, and ratchet it up to get, get it around. And anyway, the strap goes through the mechanism. It's going through. It's going through. And then eventually it, it got so much strap in there that it got stuck. I don't know if you guys have had this happen before, but it gets stuck. You, you can't move it, and the, the strap is in there. There's just so much strap. And I'm like, what is this thing even good for? There's still, like, all this, like, length of, of, of strap left. I can't get it through. So I end up having to cut the thing the strap to pieces to get the rope out and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, this thing is useless. Why ever buy this tool? Well, it turns out whatever length you need, you pull out just all the excess out of the mechanism and it's easy as pie. <laughs> the easiest thing in the world. But I was so dumb because that's all you have to do. So, so when you don't use a tool correctly or use it, or when it's not used for its proper purpose, it's pretty much useless, right? It's not good for much else. And so the church's primary purpose isn't to make people feel good. We want to be encouraging, but it's, it's primary purpose isn't to make people feel good. And it's not to cater to your every need. And it's not a club or, or a bunch of friends. I, I rode by a guy on a motorbike on the way up here and he, you know, has his leather jacket on with like his biker gang on it and everything. And, and the church isn't like that. This, this is the church's purpose. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I would argue that a church is no longer a church unless this is happening. Our goal is to build one another up so that each one of us knows Christ more and looks like him more. That's our goal. Being encouraged by that, yeah, that happens. Having our needs met, yeah, that happens. But our primary goal is to build one another up so that each of us looks like Christ more and more. My greatest concern for you, your greatest concern for each other is whether you are looking more and more like Christ. This means that unity by building each other up takes work. It's work. I grew up in southern Mississippi, and I had a, a really great privilege of of growing up on a, um, well, not growing up on, but being able to go to like a family cabin that we had on a lake. And it's like uh, the little Sock River, little Sack River, however you want to say it. They dammed it up, and it became a lake, and, and there's a dam with a waterfall over it. And when I was a kid, I was deathly afraid of like not paying attention and just being carried along by the lake's current and falling over the edge of this dam, you know, in this waterfall. Like I was like deathly afraid of that. 
And that's the picture that, that Paul has in mind here. There's no floating, easy floating river trip in the Christian life. Look at verse 14. Reach mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul's point here is that as long as you are a child in the faith, you are in danger of this. You're in danger of just floating over the dam. John Stott labels this as what he calls nominal Christianity, and he says this, In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become a little bit involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. And the way to combat this, the way to combat this is to work toward maturity. Look at verse 15. Rather, rather than this, rather than being children tossed to and fro, being carried away, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you're either drifting or you're building. You're either drifting or you're building. And the thing is, heeding the call of Christ and maturing in Him is impossible without the church. So so first, it's impossible, like literally impossible, because Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and you can't do that unless there's someone to serve. So it's like literally impossible, but secondly, it's impossible because it's hard. It's hard to grow into maturity in Christ. We need one another. We need the body to remind us to carry our crosses, to encourage us to persevere, to speak the word of God to us, to rebuke us when we're in sin, to show us grace when we repent. We need the body of Christ for this. We are called to Christ-like maturity, and that requires diligent, sacrificial love from every member of the church. So I want to summarize everything I've just said with, with this sentence. We are called to loving unity by exercising responsible diversity to attain Christ-like maturity. We are called to loving unity by exercising responsible diversity to attain Christ-like maturity. This gives a whole new meaning to membership in the church. Right? Membership is participation. Membership is participation. This is not a club where we pay our dues and we have membership for life. We need to ask ourselves if membership is possible if someone isn't actively exercising their gifts within that body. Is that even possible according to this passage? And I'm not talking about shut-ins. I'm not talking about the elderly or the disabled. I know that there's, there's nuance here. 
But for someone who is capable, for someone who is capable, and we call them members, and they're not actively participating in the body, what does that mean in light of this passage? Because the body is hurt when we withhold our presence and our gifts. So this means that when a member strays, we go after them. When they don't come, we go after them. We get them back. When we see them sinning, we go and confront them in their sin. When they're hurting, we comfort them. You guys know when Cain killed Abel, you know what he asked? This is a notorious question. Am I my brother's keeper? Like God asked Cain. God knows Cain killed Abel, but God asked him, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to keep up with where my brother is? Am I supposed to keep up with everything that they're doing? No, I've, I've got enough on my plate. But the answer is, yeah, you are your brother's keeper. Absolutely you are. Absolutely you are. When Christ saved you, he saved you to his church to be built up by it and to help build it up. You are your brother's keeper. If you are united to a local body of Christians, you are united to them. You are their keeper. This is hard work. Harder than keeping the Old Testament commands. But His grace is enough. The grace of Christ is enough because His grace is enough to cover our failures and our sins. And there are many. So... His grace is enough to cover where we fail, where we, where we don't act as we should, where we fail to be our brother's keeper, where we fail to build up the body of Christ, where we fail this. His grace is enough for that, and His grace is enough to empower this kind of obedience. His grace is enough. And Christ gives more and more and more grace because right now, right now at this moment, we are the living Christ's body. And he loves his body, the church. He loves it. Christ desires to build up his church. For for Liberty Baptist Church, this local body of believers, Christ, the King of all kings, the Lord of the universe, wants us to be built up in unity, wants us to be this, this wonderfully diverse group of believers who build one another up in him. He wants that. He desires that for us. And he will do it because he's faithful to do it. So let's bank this on Christ. Christ, this is what you want. Lord Jesus, this is what you want. Then do it and help us to do it. We are called to loving unity by exercising responsible diversity to attain Christ-like maturity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is amazing that you descended as a man, died on a cross, and have ascended to the highest place at the right hand of God to exercise your rule and authority through us. A small old country church north of Springfield by Fellows Lake the Lord of the universe wants to exercise his rule and authority through us. That is both humbling and awesome. And it is a great privilege to be a part of your body. 
And so, God, I pray for us. I pray for every faithful church in Springfield that you would build us up in you to more and more Christ-like maturity so that we would not just drift in this Christian life, so that we would not just go with the flow, but that we would work, work to build one another up, work to love one another, work to serve one another more and more and more, not, not to just tediously follow these commands, but to God to be built up in you, to know your fullness, to know your joy, to know the joy of what it means to carry our crosses, to forget ourselves and serve you. Build us up in the way that you see fit, Lord Christ. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.